Section 27 of The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Here I am obliged to make a digression, though I declare I never had a less mind to it than I have at this minute. But I see a thousand rods and piss, and the whole posse of diminutive pedants against me, for assaulting the Christ-cross row, and opposing the very elements of literature. This is no panic fear, and the reader will not imagine my apprehensions ill-grounded if he considers what an army of petty tyrants I have to cope with, that all either actually persecute with birch, or else are soliciting for such a preferment. For if I had no other adversaries than the starving wretches of both sexes throughout the kingdom of Great Britain, that from a natural antipathy to working have a great dislike to their present employment, and perceiving within a much stronger inclination to command than ever they felt to obey others, think themselves qualified, and wish from their hearts to be masters and mistresses of charity schools, the number of my enemies would, by the most modest computation, amount to one hundred thousand at least. Methinks I hear them cry out that a more dangerous doctrine was never broached, and popery is a fool to it, and ask what brute of a Saracen it is that draws his ugly weapon for the destruction of learning. It is ten to one, but they will indict me for endeavoring, by instigation of the Prince of Darkness, to introduce into these realms greater ignorance and barbarity than ever nation was plunged into by Goths and Vandals since the light of the gospel first appeared in the world. Whoever labors under the public odium has always crimes laid to his charge he never was guilty of, and it will be suspected that I have had a hand in obliterating the Holy Scriptures, and perhaps affirmed that it was at my request that the small Bibles, published by patent in the year 1721, and chiefly made use of in charity schools, were, through badness of print and paper, rendered illegible, which yet I protest I am as innocent of as the child unborn. But I am in a thousand fears. The more I consider my case, the worse I like it and the greatest comfort I have is in my sincere belief that hardly anybody will mind a word of what I say, or else, if ever the people suspected that what I write would be of any weight to any considerable part of society, I should not have the courage barely to think on all the trades I should disoblige, and I cannot but smile when I reflect on the variety of uncouth sufferings that would be prepared for me, if the punishment they would differently inflict upon me was emblematically to point at my crime. For if I was not suddenly stuck full of useless pen-knives up to the hilts, the company of stationers would certainly take me in hand, and either have me buried alive in their hall, under a great heap of primers and spelling-books they would not be able to sell, or else send me up against tide to be bruised to death in a paper-mill, that would be obliged to stand still a week upon my account. The ink-makers, at the same time, would, for the public good, offer to choke me with astringence, or drown me in the black liquor that would be left upon their hands, which, if they joined stock, might easily be performed in less than a month. And if I should escape the cruelty of these united bodies, the resentment of a private monopolist would be as fatal to me, and I should find myself pelted and knocked on the head with little squat Bibles clasped in brass, and ready-armed for mischief, that, charitable learning ceasing, would be fit for nothing but unopened to fight with and exercises truly polemic. The digression I spoke of just now is not the foolish trifle that ended with the last paragraph, and which the grave critic, to whom all mirth is unseasonable, will think very impertinent. 
but a serious apologetical one I am going to make out of hand, to clear myself from having any design against arts and sciences, as some heads of colleges and other careful preservers of human learning might have apprehended, upon seeing ignorance recommended as a necessary ingredient in the mixture of civil society. In the first place, I would have near double the number of professors in every university of what there is now. Theology with us is generally well provided, but the other two faculties have very little to boast of, especially physic. Every branch of that art ought to have two or three professors that would take pains to communicate their skill and knowledge to others. In public lectures, a vain man has great opportunities to set off his parts, but private instructions are more useful to students. Pharmacy and the knowledge of the simples are as necessary as anatomy or the history of diseases. It is a shame that when men have taken their degree and are by authority entrusted with the lives of the subject, they should be forced to come to London to be acquainted with the materia medica and the composition of medicines and receive instructions from others that never had university education themselves. It is certain that in the city I named, there is ten times more opportunity for a man to improve himself in anatomy, botany, pharmacy, and the practice of physic than at both universities together. What has an oil shop to do with silks, or who would look for hams and pickles at a mercer's? Where things are well managed, hospitals are made as subservient to the advancement of students in the art of physic as they are to the recovery of health in the poor. Good sense ought to govern men in learning as well as in trade. No man ever bound his son apprentice to a goldsmith to make him a linen draper. Then why should he have a divine for his tutor to become a lawyer or a physician? It is true that the languages, logic, and philosophy should be the first studies in all the learned professions. But there is so little help for physic in our universities that are so rich, and where so many idle people are well paid for eating and drinking, and being magnificently as well as commodiously lodged, that bar books, and what is common to all the three faculties, a man may as well qualify himself at Oxford or Cambridge to be a turkey merchant as he can to be a physician, which is, in my humble opinion, a great sign that some part of the great wealth they are possessed of is not so well applied as it might be. Professors should, besides their stipends allowed them by the public, have gratifications from every student they teach, that self-interest, as well as emulation and the love of glory, might spur them on to labor and assiduity. When a man excels in any one study or part of learning, and is qualified to teach others, he ought to be procured, if money will purchase him, without regarding what party, or indeed what country or nation he is of, whether black or white. Universities should be public marts for all manner of literature, as your annual fairs that are kept at Leipzig, Frankfurt, and other places in Germany are for different wares and merchandises, where no difference is made between natives and foreigners, and which men resort to from all parts of the world with equal freedom and equal privilege. From paying the gratifications I spoke of, I would excuse all students designed for the ministry of the gospel. There is no faculty so immediately necessary to the government of a nation as that of theology, and as we ought to have great numbers of divines for the service of this island, I would not have the meaner people discouraged from bringing up their children to that function. For though wealthy men, if they have many sons, sometimes make one of them a clergyman, as we see even persons of quality take up holy orders, and there are likewise people of good sense, especially divines, that from a principle of prudence bring up their children to that profession, 
when they are morally assured that they have friends or interest enough, and shall be able, either by a good fellowship at the university, at Vausen's, or other means to procure them a livelihood. But these produce not the large number of divines that are yearly ordained, and for the bulk of the clergy we are indebted to another original. Among the middling people of all trades there are bigots who have a superstitious awe for a gown and a cassock. Of these there are multitudes that feel an ardent desire of having a son promoted to the ministry of the gospel, without considering what is to become of them afterwards, and many a kind mother in this kingdom, without consulting her own circumstances or her child's capacity, transported with this laudable wish, is daily feasting on this pleasing thought, and often before her son is twelve years old, mixing maternal love with devotion, throws herself into ecstasies and tears of satisfaction by reflecting on the future enjoyment she is to receive from seeing him stand in a pulpit and, with her own ears, hearing him preach the word of God. It is to this religious zeal, or at least the human frailties that pass for and represent it, that we owe the great plenty of poor scholars the nation enjoys. For, considering the inequality of livings, and the smallness of benefices up and down the kingdom, without this happy disposition and parents of small fortune, we could not possibly be furnished from any other quarter with proper persons for the ministry, to attend all the cures of souls, so pitifully provided for, that no mortal could live upon them that had been educated in any tolerable plenty, unless he was possessed of real virtue, which it is foolish and indeed injurious, we should more expect from the clergy than we generally find it in the laity. The great care I would take to promote that part of learning which is more immediately useful to society should not make me neglect the more curious and polite, but all the liberal arts and every branch of literature should be encouraged throughout the kingdom more than they are, if my wishing could do it. In every county there should be one or more large schools, erected at the public charge, for Latin and Greek, that should be divided into six or more classes, with particular masters in each of them. The whole should be under the care and inspection of some men of letters and authority, who would not only be titular governors, but actually take pains at least twice a year, in hearing every class thoroughly examined by the master of it, and not content themselves with judging of the progress the scholars had made for the themes and other exercises that had been made out of their sight. At the same time, I would discharge and hinder the multiplicity of those petty schools that never would have had any existence had the masters of them not been extremely indigent. It is a vulgar error that nobody can spell or write English well without a little smatch of Latin. This is upheld by pedants for their own interest, and by none more strenuously maintained than such of them as are poor scholars in more than one sense. In the meantime, it is an abominable falsehood. I have known, and I am still acquainted with several, and some of the fair sex, that never learned any Latin, and yet kept to strict orthography, and write admirable good sense. Where, on the other hand, everybody may meet with the scribblings of pretended scholars, at least such as went to a grammar school for several years, that have grammar faults and are ill-spelled. The understanding of Latin thoroughly is highly necessary to all that are designed for any of the learned professions, and I would have no gentleman without literature. Even those who are to be brought up attorneys, surgeons, and apothecaries should be much better versed in that language than generally they are. But to youth, who afterwards are to get a livelihood in trades and callings in which Latin is not daily wanted, it is of no use, 
and the learning of it an evident loss of just so much time and money as are bestowed upon it. When men come into business, what was taught them of it in those petty schools is either soon forgot, or only fit to make them impertinent, and often very troublesome in company. Few men can forbear vaulting themselves on any knowledge they had once acquired, even after they have lost it, and, unless they are very modest and discreet, the undigested scraps which such people commonly remember of Latin seldom fail of rendering them, at one time or other, ridiculous to those who understand it. Reading and writing I would treat as we do music and dancing. I would not hinder them nor force them upon the society. As long as there was anything to be got by them, there would be masters enough to teach them. But nothing should be taught for nothing but at church. And here I would exclude even those who might be designed for the ministry of the gospel. For, if parents are so miserably poor that they cannot afford their children these first elements of learning, it is impudence in them to aspire any further. It would encourage, likewise, the lower sort of people to give their children this part of education, if they could see them preferred to those of idle sorts or sorry rakehells, that never knew what it was to provide a rag for their brats but by begging. But now, when a boy or a girl are wanted for any small service, we reckon it a duty to employ our charity children before any other. The education of them looks like a reward for being vicious and unactive, a benefit commonly bestowed on parents who deserve to be punished for shamefully neglecting their families. In one place you may hear a rascal half-drunk damning himself call for the other pot, and as a good reason for it, add that his boy is provided for in clothes and has his schooling for nothing. In another you shall see a poor woman in great necessity whose child is to be taken care of because herself is a lazy slut and never did anything to remedy her wants in good earnest but bewailing them at a gin shop. If everybody's children are well taught, who by their own industry can educate them at our universities, there will be men of learning enough to supply this nation and such another, and reading, writing, or arithmetic would never be wanting in the business that requires them, though none were to learn them but such whose parents could be at the charge of it. It is not with letters as it is with gifts of the Holy Ghost, that they may not be purchased with money and bought wit, if we believe the proverb, is none of the worst. I thought it necessary to say thus much of learning, to obviate the clamors of the enemies to truth and fair dealing, who, had I not so amply explained myself on this head, would have represented me as a mortal foe to all literature and useful knowledge, and a wicked advocate for universal ignorance and stupidity. I shall now make good my promise, of answering what I know the well-wishers to charity schools would object against me, by saying that they brought up the children under their care to warrantable and laborious trades, and not to idleness, as I did insinuate. I have sufficiently showed already why going to school was idleness if compared to working, and exploded this sort of education in the children of the poor because it incapacitates them ever after for downright labor, which is their proper province, and, in every civil society, a portion they ought not to repine or grumble at, if exacted from them with discretion and humanity. What remains is that I should speak to their putting them out to trades, which I shall endeavor to demonstrate to be destructive to the harmony of a nation, and an impertinent intermeddling with what few of these governors know anything of. In order to this, let us examine into the nature of societies, and what the compound ought to consist of, if we would raise it to as high a degree of strength, beauty, and perfection 
as the ground we are to do upon it will let us. The variety of services that are required to supply the luxurious and wanton desires, as well as real necessities of man, with all their subordinate callings, is in such a nation as ours prodigious. Yet it is certain that though the number of those several occupations be excessively great, it is far from being infinite. If you add one more than is required, it must be superfluous. If a man had a good stock, and the best shop in Cheapside to sell turbans in, he would be ruined. And if Demetrius or any other silversmith made nothing but Diana's shrines, he would not get his bread, now the worship of that goddess is out of fashion. As it is folly to set up trades that are not wanted, so what is next to it is to increase in any one trade the numbers beyond what are required. As things are managed with us, it would be preposterous to have as many brewers as there are bakers, or as many woolen drapers as there are shoemakers. This proportion as to numbers in every trade finds itself, and is never better kept than when nobody meddles or interferes with it. People that have children to educate that must get their livelihood are always consulting and deliberating what trade or calling they are to bring them up to, until they are fixed. And thousands think on this, that hardly think at all on anything else. First, they confine themselves to their circumstances, and he that can give but ten pounds with his son must not look out for a trade, where they ask an hundred with an apprentice. But the next they think on is always which will be the most advantageous. If there be a calling where at that time people are more generally employed than they are in any other in the same reach, there are presently half a score fathers ready to supply it with their sons. Therefore, the greatest care most companies have is about the regulation of the number of apprentices. Now, when all trades complain, and perhaps justly, that they are overstocked, you manifestly injure that trade, to which you add one member more than would flow from the nature of society. Besides that, the governors of charity schools do not deliberate so much what trade is the best, but what tradesmen they can get that will take the boys, with such a sum, and few men of substance and experience will have anything to do with these children. They are afraid of a hundred inconveniences from the necessitous parents of them, so that they are bound, at least most commonly, either to sots and neglectful masters, or else such as are very needy and do not care what becomes of their apprentices, after they have received the money, by which it seems as if we studied nothing more than to have a perpetual nursery for charity schools. When all trades and handicrafts are overstocked, it is a certain sign there is a fault in the management of the whole, for it is impossible there should be too many people if the country is able to feed them. Are provisions dear? Whose fault is that, as long as you have ground untilled and hands unemployed? But I shall be answered, that to increase plenty must at long run undo the farmer, or lessen the rents all over England. To which I reply, that what the husbandman complains of most, is what I would redress. The greatest grievance of farmers, gardeners, and others, where hard labor is required and dirty work to be done, is that they cannot get servants for the same wages they used to have them at. The day laborer grumbles at sixteen pence to do no other drudgery than what thirty years ago his grandfather did cheerfully for half the money. As to the rents, it is impossible they should fall while you increase your numbers. But the price of provisions, and all labor in general, must fall with them, if not before and a man of a hundred and fifty pounds a year has no reason to complain that his income is reduced to one hundred if he can buy as much for that one hundred as before he could have done for two. 
There is no intrinsic worth in money, but what is alterable with the times. And whether a guinea goes for twenty pounds or for a shilling, it is, as I have already hinted before, the labor of the poor, and not the high and low value that is set on gold and silver, which all the comforts of life must arise from. It is in our power to have a much greater plenty than we enjoy, if agriculture and fishery were taken care of, as they might be. But we are so little capable of increasing our labor that we have hardly poor enough to do what is necessary to make us subsist. The proportion of the society is spoiled, and the bulk of the nation, which should everywhere consist of laboring poor, that are unacquainted with everything but their work, is too little for the other parts. In all business where downright labor is shunned or overpaid, there is plenty of people. To one merchant you have ten bookkeepers, or at least pretenders, and everywhere in the country the farmer wants hands. Ask for a footman that for some time has been in gentlemen's families, and you will get a dozen that are all butlers. You may have chambermaids by the score, but you cannot get a cook under extravagant wages. Nobody will do the dirty slavish work that can help it. I do not discommend them, but all these things show that the people of the meanest rank know too much to be serviceable to us. Servants require more than masters and mistresses can afford, and what madness is it to encourage them in this, by industriously increasing at our cost that knowledge which they will be sure to make us pay for over again. And it is not only those who are educated at our own expense encroach upon us, but the raw, ignorant country wenches and boobily fellows that can do and are good for nothing impose upon us likewise. The scarcity of servants occasioned by the education of the first gives a handle to the latter of advancing their price, and demanding what ought only to be given to servants that understand their business, and have most of the good qualities that can be required in them. There is no place in the world where there are more clever fellows to look at, or to do an errand, than some of our footmen. But what are they good for in the main? The greatest part of them are rogues, and not to be trusted. And if they are honest, half of them are sots, and will get drunk three or four times a week. The surly ones are generally quarrelsome, and valuing their manhood beyond all other considerations, care not what clothes they spoil, or what disappointments they may occasion when their prowess is in question. Those who are good-natured are generally sad whore-masters, that are ever running after the wenches, and spoil all the maid-servants they come near. Many of them are guilty of all these vices, whoring, drinking, quarreling, and yet shall have all their faults overlooked and bore with, because they are men of good main and humble address, that know how to wait on gentlemen, which is an unpardonable folly in masters, and generally ends in the ruin of servants. Some few there are that are not addicted to any of these failings, and understand their duty besides. But as these are rarities, so there is not one in fifty but what overrates himself. His wages must be extravagant, and you can never have done giving him. Everything in the house is his perquisite, and he will not stay with you unless his veils are sufficient to maintain a middling family. And though you had taken him from the dunghill, out of an hospital, or a prison, you shall never keep him longer than he can make of his place. What in his high estimation of himself he shall think he deserves. Nay, the best and most civilized, that never were saucy and impertinent, will leave the most indulgent master, and, to get handsomely away, frame fifty excuses, and tell downright lies, as soon as they can mend themselves. A man who keeps an half-crown or twelve-penny ordinary looks not more for money from his customers than a footman does from every guest that dines or sups with his master. 
and I question whether the one does not often think a shilling or half a crown, according to the quality of the person, his due as much as the other. A housekeeper, who cannot afford to make many entertainments, and does not often invite people to his table, can have no creditable manservant, and is forced to take up with some country booby or other awkward fellow, who will likewise give him the slip as soon as he imagines himself fit for any other service, and is made wiser by his rascally companions. All noted eating-houses and places that many gentlemen resort to for diversion or business, more especially the precincts of Westminster Hall, are the great schools for servants, where the dullest fellows may have their understandings improved, and get rid at once of their stupidity and their innocence. They are the academies for footmen, where public lectures are daily read on all sciences of low debauchery, by the experienced professors of them, and students are instructed in above seven hundred illiberal arts how to cheat, impose upon, and find the blind side of their masters, with so much application that in few years they become graduates in iniquity. Young gentlemen and others that are not thoroughly versed in the world, when they get such knowing sharpers in their service, are commonly indulging above measure, and for fear of discovering their want of experience, hardly dare to contradict or deny them in anything which is often the reason that by allowing them unreasonable privileges, they expose their ignorance when they are most endeavoring to conceal it. Some perhaps will lay the things I complain of to the charge of luxury, of which I said that it could do no hurt to a rich nation, if the imports never did exceed the exports, but I do not think this imputation just, and nothing ought to be scored on the account of luxury that is downright the effect of folly." A man may be very extravagant in indulging his ease and his pleasure, and render the enjoyment of the world as operose and expensive as they can be made, if he can afford it, and at the same time show his good sense in everything about him. This he cannot be said to do if he industriously renders his people incapable of doing him that service he expects from them. It is too much money, excessive wages, and unreasonable veils that spoil servants in England. A man may have five and twenty horses in his stables without being guilty of folly if it suits with the rest of his circumstances, but if he keeps but one and overfeeds it to show his wealth, he is a fool for his pains. Is it not madness to suffer that servants should take three and others five per cent of what they pay to tradesmen for their masters, as is so well known to watchmakers and others that sell toys, superfluous knick-knacks and other curiosities, if they deal with people of quality and fashionable gentlemen that are above telling their own money? If they should accept of a present when offered, it might be connived at, but it is an unpardonable impudence that they should claim it as their due, and contend for it if refused. Those who have all the necessaries of life provided for can have no occasion for money but what does them hurt as servants, unless they were to hoard it up for age or sickness, which among our skip-kennels, is not very common, and even then it makes them saucy and insupportable. End of section 27